Hello and welcome back to So Novel. In today's episode, I chat to Dr. Hannah Carell. She's a neuroscientist who has released her debut book, How to Break Up with Friends. We chat about the movement from friendships to friendships, navigating friendships as you navigate the ebbs and flows of life, and what we can do to make sure we don't become the shit in the friendship. Hi, and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host, Jess, and in this fortnightly podcast, I will be chatting all things books, as well as interviews with authors, publishers, and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read, or you want to know the story behind the story, then this is the podcast for you. Hannah, hello, and welcome to the So Novel Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. So first question I wanted to ask, what are you currently reading? Um, oh my gosh, actually I just downloaded a new book just this morning. So I just finished um, Christine Northrup's Divine Goddesses and now I'm reading Frederick Dodson's Levels of Energy. Oh, is that like mm. a nonfiction? Yeah, nonfiction. It's, it's all about sort of spirituality. So yeah, getting in touch with my spiritual side, Jess. Nice, nice. (laughs) So first, uh, we're going to talk today about your debut book, How to Break Up with Friends. So to start off, can you tell us a bit about the book and what is the story behind the story? So the book is uh, basically your, uh, I suppose, 101 all-encompassing guide on how to navigate toxic friendships, which I think is such a common issue with a lot of people. And and since I wrote the book and since it's been out, I've just been flooded with like DMs and people messaging me on the Instagram at no bullsike saying that they've experienced this and that it's been something that they've either they're going through now or they've gone through in the past when they were younger. Uh, So it's really, it's really common experience unfortunately that I noticed we don't really discuss so as I was going through my 20s I had some you know issues with friends who were perhaps less than friendly to me and I found that a lot of people around me like my siblings um, my other friends were also expressing that they were having some issues with their friendships too just giving and giving and being there for these people that they loved but then not getting that level of support when they needed it Um, so I think you know there's a real you know, lack of discussion when it comes to toxic friends. Like we'll talk about toxic partners and we'll talk about bad workplaces and we'll talk about, you know, self-respect, but it it doesn't seem to have kind of seeped into the realms of friendship yet. Um, And it's like, that's the last kind of taboo topic to discuss when it comes to it's okay to assert your boundaries in a friendship as well. Like we've put friendship on this pedestal. That's like, if you get any kind of friendship, just take it, you know, and give it a whole pass to do whatever a friend is a friend is a friend, but actually friends can sometimes be very toxic to us. And what I've found with my research, cause I'm a neuropsychologist as well, is that that has a really insidious effect on your cardiovascular health, your brain health, your physical health, as well as your emotional health in the long term. Yeah, great. So tell us about um, close friendship. So how many close friends can we have? 
Mm, this is a great question, Jess. Uh, there's, a, there's a few different types of research models on this. A really popular one is Norman Doidge, uh, sorry, Robin Dunbar's uh, Dunbar number, which I've posted on my Instagram in the past and I discuss it in the book. And this is the idea that, you know, if you think about the size of your brain, right? So we have XYZ size brain and you think about the size of, say, like, I don't know, a squirrel's brain, we've got different sizes of brains, Yeah. Yep. So the parts of our brains, the neocortex part of our brain that is dedicated to complex relationships and understanding complex relationships is only so big. Just like if you think about a calendar, you have only so much time in your day between taking care of the children, going to uni, going to work, doing the washing, getting <laughs> some sleep. You know, you have only so much time in your day to actually engage in complex friendships. And it's the same for your brain. Your brain only has a certain amount of real estate that it can give to really, really, really close complex relationships. And what the literature is telling us is that relationships. This is not just friendships. So this includes um, partners, children, family members. Your brain is only really equipped to handle about five of these really, really uber close relationships. Like when I say close, I mean, they're so close. They, you know, they'll, they'll walk in on you in the shower, like that level of closeness. So if you think about in your life, you're like, oh yeah, you know, there's mom, there's dad, there's my partner, maybe my kid, maybe like, you know, one or two super duper close girlfriends who I'm happy, you know, we strut around in towels together when we're going out (laughs) on night out, you know, those kind of friendships. And we talk to them like, every week, maybe every day. Um, And then the next level is uh, less close, but still close friends, which Dunbar thinks we can have up to 15. And these are people who you might see more like maybe once a fortnight, once a month. So you're not catching up with them every single week. They're not in your life every single day. And it keeps going down these levels of closeness that your brain can handle. And you can have more people on less close levels. And then people fluctuate in and out of these levels over time. So at one point in your life, you might be really close to uni friends. And then at another point in your life, when you get married and have children, uh, you might be closer to certain other friends who are also going through parenthood. And then later in life, you reconnect with those uni friends. So people fluctuate in and out of how close they are during different phases of your life. And that's totally normal in the, in the literature. That is completely normal for you to experience that. Yeah, great. So when I was reading this book, I had this realization. Now, I hope this doesn't turn into like a therapy session. (laughs) Um, But the point at which I felt most like an adult was probably around like six months after I'd finished school. And it kind of hit me that I was going to have to make an effort to keep friendships a priority because you know, when you're at school, you see your friends every day, you don't have to make time for those relationships. Um, so then you leave school and you have this realization like, oh, I actually, you know, have to work at this. And I feel like, um, like, so I've just turned 30 and I feel like I'm kind of going back to that point in my life where I, you know, I have kids, I have a husband, you know, I kind of almost have those five relationships filled and, you know, I have different expectations on my friendships, you know, is, is that something that we can expect? Yeah. Like you were saying, you kind of go through that period in your life where, you know, you might have these close friendships, but you don't necessarily expect to 
speak to them or hear from them constantly as what you would have maybe in your 20s? Yeah, definitely. You really hit the nail on the head there, Jess. So, you know, when we go through different phases of our lives, your tribe, so the people who are closest to you, are going to change. And parenthood in particular is a a really unique phenomenon where you go through this thing called didactic withdrawals, which is literally this, this is like scientific term for the energy shifts as you become the role of a mum or the role of a dad, or you turn your system turns into an individual unit to a family unit. So you're reinvesting those energy, um, that energy and time you have into converting your life into a total different system and you from one role to a new role. Um, so you're quite right. You, you do have uh, a redistribution of your effort levels, your time levels, and the fact that, as you say, we're physically not as, uh, you know, in close proximity to certain people in our lives when we move out of high school and uni. And this is where we get that old adage, oh, you can't make friends when you're an adult, which is not necessarily the truth, but also in part a little kind of fair to say. And that's because we lose time. Like we are, I mean, well, we're blessed. We're blessed with other things in our life. We have, you know, a career and a job and children and a partner and maybe a business. And so that means that we have perhaps less time to dedicate to the friendships that we used to when we were just dealing with school uh, and when we were a bit younger. So, it's important to give yourself the leeway of understanding that, yes, it is perfectly normal for you to have shifts in how much time and energy you can give certain friendships. And that's fair. That's totally fair. So maybe it's a drink every six months rather than the weekly Sunday daiquiris that you used to have. Uh, And that's, that's fair. You've got to be kind to yourself. Um, It's also about kind of remembering that, Everything, I don't want to, everyone's going to cringe when I say this, but it comes down to self-care, doesn't it, Jess? Like, (laughs) self-care. Like, we need to be able to, you know, at some point in our calendar, say, I need to block out this afternoon or this weekend for doing a bit of socialising because it is really important for your brain to keep connected to people you love and that you care about and to continue to just give a little bit of that energy to fostering those close friendships like a plant. You know, if we don't water it, it's going to start to wither Um And, you know, it's okay. A a big part of this friendship revolution is saying it's okay to put your mental health first. It's okay to put your mental health first. And sometimes that means cutting ties with a toxic friend. But sometimes that also means putting yourself first where you say, it is okay for me to schedule an afternoon where I go to coffee with my girlfriend, with my bestie, and I talk to her about how I'm feeling. And, you know, I'm... I don't need to be, you know, super mum and I, I don't need to sacrifice every minute of every hour of every day to these children because in actual fact, it re-energizes me to come back after an afternoon with my beautiful friends where I can be beautiful mum and not totally run down and burnt out mum. I can be re-energized and recharged and that's okay for you to put your mental health first. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you talk about self-care and how it relates to mental health as well. And I know you've said that you went on a bit of a woo-woo journey in the last 12 months. (laughs) So could you tell us more about that and also um, how that relates through your app that you have, Assert Yourself? 
Oh my God. Yeah. The woo woo rah rah. This is the, you know, it's funny because as soon as you use the word spiritual or like journey, it's sort of like everyone's like, oh God, she's getting airy fairy. Um, Here we go again. <laughs> but I suppose as a neuroscientist, so I've, I've got a PhD in neuroscience, I'm a neuropsychologist, I, I love the brain. And I guess, you know, on a neurotransmitter level, on an electromagnetic, you know, electrons, atoms, down to the quantum mechanics, the science has been able to rebridge me back into the spirituality. Um, so through science, I've been able to reconnect with what is going on on a deeper level for me. Because I'm always about, you know, why do we meditate? What does it actually do to our brain? What does it do to our neurotransmitters? Like, I want to know what's the science of this. Um, and so with that analytical brain, I've kind of done a full circle and I've come back to the spiritual side of things. Uh, so for me, I guess um, a, a bit of an awakening came when I, I sort of had this pivotal shift in making a decision to really ultimately respect myself and and had this kind of like mindset shift where I went from I'm giving and giving and giving to all these people around me to shifting over to what I give is worthwhile and the kindness and the love and all the favors and all the time and all the money and all the energy is actually worth something. It's worth a lot. And so me just freely giving it away to people who treated me poorly was low self-respect ultimately. Um, so when I shifted that mentality to valuing that more and saying, you know what, maybe if I untie myself to these toxic influences, perhaps yes, I'll have fewer friends, but actually by doing that, it made this space suddenly exist, like a vacancy exist. And before I knew it, that kind of just got filled up. And what filled it was now reflecting that respect that I had for myself. Uh, and, and I felt the change. I felt the change. I was like, all through my 20s, I was like giving, giving and feeling alone and lonely. And I was like, I don't understand. I have all these beautiful friends that I always do so much for them. Why do I feel so alone? And now I'm like, wow, all these beautiful people around me make me feel loved. I feel loved. I feel the kindness of all these beautiful, beautiful people around me. Um, and I suppose it, it ultimately all came down to a shift in self-respect. And a big part of that is this, is this little term called assertiveness. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you mentioned my app, Assert Yourself. That's something I created um, because, you know, it all kind of tied together. Like, there's all this synchronicity of things tying together for me. Um, one of my younger sisters was, you know, on the phone to me at like one in the morning one day, kind of crying. And her poor little heart was breaking because she had taken her baby to the nurse uh, to get her flu shot. And she'd heard, you know, it's really important that you check the, the batch number and the expiry date before you inject the shot. Like, good mums do this. And she'd gone, I'm going to check it, you know, when I go to see the nurse. Um, but then she was so intimidated that she was too afraid to, to pause and just say, hey, can you just check the batch number for me? Like, she just kind of let it proceed and didn't feel like she could have the assertiveness to say, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable. Um, and you know, it was really this, like, I was like, of course you have the right to ask that. that. That seems perfectly reasonable to ask that. But there was just this blockage with her. And I think that really epitomized for me what a lot of women 
are going through, which is that we experience this, I don't know, this like blockage, this pause, this inability to speak when we know we're uncomfortable and we know something's not right. And we know deep down that we know best about what's right for us and what's right for our family. And yet we get talked into doing things we don't want to do. We get talked into commitments that we don't, we don't have the time or the money or the energy for. Uh, and we, we look back and we feel this regret and this guilt that, ah, oh, you know, why didn't I trust my gut instinct? Why didn't I just go with my instincts? Um, so I, I felt really compelled to make this app, which was all about reconnecting us to being able to hear that instinct deep down underneath all the screams and the shouts of pressure and, um, stress and anxiety underneath that reconnecting to what is your intuition about a situation and then feeling empowered to actually act on it. Yeah, I love that. And I loved the statements on there as well, because I have to say, like, I probably resonate with your sister because I'm such a yes person. And then um, I get this overwhelming anxiety that, oh my God, I've said yes to way too much. And then I feel like I become that person that's, I don't know, I I have to cancel because, you know, you start the excuses and that. Like, yeah, I think this app would be, yeah, excellent for, you know, Everyone out there, you know, <laughs> mums especially. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. Listen to your gut. Yes, definitely. Now, the quote in the book that shocked me the most was one in five millennials say they have no friends. Now, I'm a millennial. Well, you know, I'm, I'm on the higher end of millennial, but I'm still in the millennial. And, like, I think our generation has really grown up in that social media phenomenon. So, you know, we started off with, this is really going to show my age, but we started off with MSN Messenger and then, you know, we had MySpace and then of course we found Facebook and Instagram. How do you think that statistic um, is a, do you think that statistic is a direct result of social Oh, look, that's such a great question, Jess. Like you, you're really tapping into this new found communication style. And it's interesting because there's like the, the, the devil and the angel on both sides of my shoulders when I give an answer to this because, like, you know, the, the reasonable scientist would say, well, when we first got um, – books there used to be like ads or when the newspaper was out there used to be ads where they'd taken photos of everyone sitting on the tram reading the newspaper or reading books and the headline would be take your head out of the book and socialize you know books are the end of social communication we're not talking to each other anymore and then tv came along and everyone's like take your head out of tv tv is the end of social communication go and read a book and now it's like you know oh social media is the end of social communication go and watch a documentary on tv like every generation is a little fear-mongering of the new generation style of communication so it's a new era it's there's always going to be changes that are a bit scary and daunting we can't really predict exactly how they're going to unfold for us but what the literature is kind of saying is we've had to develop new terms for this new technology to describe the social phenomena that we're seeing. So terms like ghosting didn't exist in the past, no shows, social loafing. Social loafing means where you assume you can get away with not responding to the group chat or the invitation because there's so many other people involved so you can you won't be noticed in the crowd. Um, so there's all of these there's all of these new terms to describe what we're seeing where people are 
on superficial face value appearing to be connected by posting a video on TikTok or posting a photo on TikTok or putting a, re a reply or a like on a post, but actually on a more deeper level, not feeling so connected. Um, and I think, you know, the, the rapidity or how fast social media is, has in some ways been a bit of a double-edged sword, which means that it's good and it's bad. So it's good because, you know, you can connect people quickly, um, but it also means it's such a quick interaction. Are you really giving it that level of thought that you should be? It's almost made us too fast. So you can quickly like their post and that's your support for them graduating their uni rather than you actually calling them. Or you can quickly say you're going to an event and then quickly click that you're no longer going to that event rather than saying to that person, I'm so sorry, I can't make your event or really thinking about what is this commitment that I've you know, I've said I'm going to go and now I'm pulling out of it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's made us very fast. Uh, the flip side of that is, you know, there are beautiful ways we can connect through um, apps like Meetup and Bumble, friends to meet new people. I think that we're on the verge, we're on the verge of tipping over into using our social media a bit more um mindfully and directly when it comes to friendships we've we've started using it for new things we use it for ordering food now we use it for ordering taxis now we use it for dating now I think we will start to move into using it purposefully to connect with friends too and that's going to be the next big thing maybe we're not there yet but we're moving in that direction mm, yeah I agree I think that would be really good too, especially for, you know, people who are in, you know, rural areas and don't have access as such to, you know, a, a larger community that they might feel like they fit into. And how do you think um, COVID has affected our friendships in 2020? So I know you kind of had almost this social media fatigue when we were kind of in lockdown. I mean, especially in Melbourne, I guess, would be feeling it. But um you know, having that connection, I know I heard some people say, I, di I didn't want to talk to anyone because I didn't want to burden them. And then other people were relying heavily on their friendships and let down. Do you think COVID may actually have a positive impact on some of these toxic relationships for people to realise that maybe it's not in their best, best interest to have that relationship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of talk at length about in the book about fundamentally assessing your relationship with your friend. And you know about this, Jess, we go through like a behavioral analysis, you know, I, I'm, I'm a neuropsych, I'll take you through a behavioral analysis of your friendship with that person and really evaluating where are they, where might they be coming from? Why might they be behaving in that way? Where are the commonalities in their behaviors and when they've treated you poorly and what can you postulate might be the reasons for that. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we can never really know for sure why a person might be treating us poorly. We can only know our own behaviour and how we feel. Um, I think in terms of COVID, like if we think about it in terms of a spectrum, so you have a spectrum of really good relationships and poorer relationships and you're sort of sitting somewhere somewhere in there maybe you don't know exactly where you are like a bit of play-doh you know sitting somewhere on this spectrum and then when we have pressure from a situation pushing down on us so we've got like something pushing down on our play-doh it's going to squish out the edges isn't it and it's either going to squish out towards the good end so squish out to pushing you towards 
bettering that friendship and becoming closer to one another as you support one another under pressure, or it's going to push out towards the cracks that might have already existed if you're always already towards the poorer side, those cracks that already existed are going to push out towards more of these issues that might have already been there starting to rear their head and declare themselves a little more. So if your friend was the friend who maybe never really replied to your messages before COVID, are they perhaps a little worse during COVID? Or if they were the friend who were a bit undermining of your opinions before COVID and when you had chats in the group settings, maybe that's personified during COVID when you're having more chats in the group settings. Um, it's, it's really tricky to say. I think there's people on both ends of the spectrum. So people who have found their friendships have flourished and they've gotten closer under this adversity and people who have found that they are having an awakening where they realise, who am I surrounded by? This period of COVID is like the first time in decades that we've all just had this pause forced on us where it's been like pause, which ultimately means time to reflect. You can't go out, you can't go to the pub, you can't distract yourself with, you know, dance class or golf lessons. You have to pause. So we've had this time to do, to be alone and to reflect on who we want around us and how we feel about who is around us. So for better or worse, this reflective period is a growth period, as cliched as that might sound. No, no, that sounds, yeah. <laughs> now, this is a bit of a psychology question, I guess, but like it's known that people tend to model romantic relationships based on their parents' relationship or the relationship of adults that were most present in their life when they were children. And they also settle into relationships because whether that's a good or bad relationship, they believe that's what they deserve. Do you think the same can be said for friendships? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. Um, yeah, so, you know, I suppose in terms of neural pathways, your brain your brain errs towards familiarity and it makes sense because that's what you know. That's what you know to be safe. And, and whether that's a good pattern of behaviour or a bad pattern of behaviour, that's what your brain knows and that's the pathway that your brain is able to fire really easily with very little effort. Like our brains are really lazy. They're actually super, super lazy machines that want to um, get the most out of the least effort. So they want to be really efficient. So when they start initially firing, uh, it might be very effortful and very hard. Like think of the first time you learned piano or you started driving a car, super effortful. You have to think about every single move. And then eventually with time, it becomes automatic and you don't have to think about it. That's like your brain in terms of relationships as well. And we can get in this sort of pattern where we get sort of stuck in similar relationships that echo previous relationships that we've had. So what our parents have demonstrated is a normal relationship or what our previous partners have demonstrated is a normal relationship. And that has that has essentially conditioned our behaviour to how we respond to a relationship and then going forward how we keep behaving and therefore what we keep attracting. Yep. <laughs> so in a way we can, I suppose, until you, the value that you place on yourself is the value that others will place on you. So because that's what you settle for. 
that's ultimately what you settle for. So, you know, this is what we talk about in the book so much is, is about actually coming to the realization that, you know, reassessing, have, have you been a good friend? Have you actually been a good friend? Are you supportive? Are you trusting? Are you affectionate? Are you respectful? Are you there for them? You know, and, and if the answer is yes, if the answer is yes, then make it a resounding yes. Like I am a good friend. I am a good friend and a good friend deserves a good friend in return. So until you actually believe that deep in your heart and you own that, I deserve good friendship because I offer such an amazing thing. I'm putting on the table the best of me. So I I want the best of who I'm getting back. And that doesn't mean I'm saying they need to buy you a yacht. It just means that that person is 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 also giving to the relationship in the reciprocal way that honors a true friendship. Um, so at the end of the day, I suppose it all comes back to do you respect yourself? Yeah. Yes, such a good point. Because my next question was going to be like, what if you're reading this book and you realize that you're the shit in the friendship and you're that you're that person that, you know, cancels last minute sometimes and you know, you might be a bit slack and putting the effort in. Um, what can we do to I guess resurrect that friendship? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think so important to be self-kind and I do discuss this in the book where we talk about you know, and this is the thing to remember, if you're reading a book, a self-help book about interpersonal skills and improving friendship, then be kind to yourself because that's a pretty good sign that you're not an asshole because you care about (laughs) reflecting on yourself and improving yourself. So, you know, be a little forgiving to yourself. Um, You know, it's one of those things where it's sort of like, and I say in the book, people people are just people. Like there's not bad people. There are people who can sometimes do some, you know, some un- poor things in life, but it doesn't make them a bad person. And and we are all, all of us are guilty of, of slipping up and, and not returning the phone call or cancelling last minute or pulling out because we're just too exhausted and we've had to put ourselves first. And if you've kind of slipped into this pattern where you're reflecting and you're going, oh man, you know, maybe I wasn't as good of a friend as I could be. I, there is so much power. We, we talk about um, the power of, of the apology in the book and, and the, the huge power of a genuine apology. Like think of a time, Jess, in your life where someone's done the wrong thing to you and how desperately you just want that person to acknowledge what they did and say sorry in a genuine fashion and just own it. Like I'm a big advocate for owning your mistakes, which is, oh my goodness, I've done this to you. I did not, that was not my intention. I was not, most of the time the case is you weren't maliciously trying to hurt that person. It was just that a series of events happened that led to you being unable to honor a commitment or do something or something slipped out and you didn't realize it was going to offend them. You didn't mean to hurt them. It's just the way it unfolded. So, you know, when it's brought to your attention instead of making excuses and saying, oh, but this and that and this and the other, just just owning, oh, I, I recognise that I've hurt you. I didn't intend to hurt you and I'm deeply sorry that I did and thank you for telling me because now I know going forward to do things differently. And that, I suppose that's the beauty of life, isn't it? Like, you know, you can do things differently going forward and 
this is all about cherishing friendships and, and learning what a true friendship is. And every page that you read means that you are honing in on what is a true friend so that you can be that person but be choosy about who you bestow that gift to. Is that person equally worthy? Mm, yeah, such a good point. Now I wanted to talk about to your writing of this book. Now I know the story, but can you tell us <laughs> how did you come about to write this book? Everybody, oh my God. I shouldn't have told the true answer because <laughs> everybody wants me to tell them this story. <laughs> oh my God. It's the best story. <laughs> so, okay. oh my God. Here we go. All right. I'm a real person, okay? <laughs> like, I'm a real person, guys. So, um, last year, ah, last year I was going on a lot of Tinder dates. So, I'm a single gal, you know, I do the Tinder, I do the Bumble, I do, et cetera. Um, and I just found, I mean, sure, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Sometimes you go on dates and you're like, that was a total waste of time. <laughs> So I, I, I was already writing the book um, as a kind of, I don't know, self-journey thing where I was writing something that I needed to hear. Uh, it was like almost like doing a journal or doing a diary. I was writing all the things that I needed to hear, you know, myself. Um, and I just kind of slipped into this pattern where I made a, a, a deal with myself that every Tinder date I went on or every date I went on, I was going to arrive an hour early and do some writing. Um, so, I, yeah, every date I just brought my laptop and I wrote um, before the date. And that way I could be totally sure that no matter what happened on the date, I had definitely gotten something productive out of out of the evening. Um, and, yeah, over the course of the year I ended up writing an entire book. <laughs> Still single, but I have a book now. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, is is this still happening? Can we expect another book wrote the same way? Um, actually, that's so funny. You know, um, I I haven't been on many dates. I've, I've definitely changed my passion. I'm not I'm not going on so many dates. I'm doing a lot more kind of. I think I suppose it's COVID, right? Like, I just I just find like maybe I'm putting more energy into developing those parts of these amazing like because I have a private practice as well I do neuropsychology in Sydney in a private practice I work in a hospital uh, on the psychiatric ward like this year has just gotten so busy for me that you know I'm so happy Jess like I'm so happy and as I said I just attracted with this shift like I can't I can't just you were at the book launch the other day like I wasn't a person who would host an event like even like a year or two years ago I would host an event and I'd be devastated because people wouldn't respond and people wouldn't want to come and I, I used to hate events I hated my birthday because I was terrified of the guest list I was terrified of the guest list because nobody ever came you know I'd go to all their things but people didn't have the time to come to my things and it was almost like I was just putting out this I don't know maybe I was putting out an energy where I was like fearful that people won't come and then they didn't come I manifested it and now this total shift has changed where I'm like I'm not going on dates I'm not worried about this thing anymore I'm just valuing me I'm just loving me I'm doing my thing I'm going to salsa class you know I'm, I'm writing a book I'm making an app I'm doing my stuff and all of a sudden 
there are all these amazing people in my life and I keep meeting these amazing people like yourself and all the other bookstagram girls. Like all of a sudden I'm just attracting, attracting, attracting. And I don't need to go on, I don't need to go on dates. Like I don't need to do any of those things. I'm so happy. Um, so I don't know, like all I can say is, you know, when you start, when you untie yourself from toxic friends, that space that they've left, it will be filled. It will be filled with the value you're now placing on yourself. Like it's happened for me. It'll happen for you too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that um, a lot of us fear is that, you know, if if we look at our friendships too closely, we might start to realise that they are a a toxic friendship, but then I'm not going to be left with anyone in my life as well. And, you know, that's quite scary. (laughs) Mm. Oh, it's up. And, you know, I think it's, and I talk about the mentalities of why we might be tying ourselves to toxic friends. Like, why do I continue to do this to myself? You know, in addition to, you know, what's the neurobiology? We talked a bit about that, but what's the psychological mentality? Why do I keep myself tied to these toxic people? And I go through heaps of different mentalities in the book. One of them, I think a big one is the fear of having no friends. And we're afraid, you know, I've got so few, so few friends, that if I untie myself from these toxic friends, I'll have no friends. Uh, And that is super common. It's so common. And it's almost like, it's almost like you can kind of laugh at the hilarity of the universe sometimes when you look at the stats and it's like, you know, 25% of people are reporting having someone they can talk to once a month, which means 75% say they don't. And, you know, 80% of men saying that they wish they had closer friends. And, you know, as you say, one in five millennials saying they don't, they don't feel like they have friends. Um, it's sort of like we're all wearing these blindfolds. All of us in society are walking past one another and not realizing that pretty much every second person you see is also wanting deeper connections and wanting to connect with you or with anyone and and have a meaningful friendship. If we just took the blindfold off and saw one another, then we'd realize there is an abundance of potential friends out there who are like-minded, like you, who probably have also experienced toxic friendship and know the value of a good friendship through that experience. They, They value friendship even more because of those experiences and that they want to make new friends too. It's just, you just have to take the blindfold off and see one another. Mm. Now, when you were talking about, yeah, like-minded friends, like I think for me, Bookstagram, like the Bookstagram community has definitely been a positive influence in my life the last 18 months since I've been on there. Um, Had you heard of Bookstagram before releasing your book? No, not at all. No, I, I had no idea. I uh, I kind of, I might have mentioned before, like um, the book process was very organic for me. Like I didn't, oh, I'm using so many cliched words, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was super organic. Um, but I just, I wrote it without even realizing what I was doing. So it didn't really occur to me consciously, I'm writing a manuscript and I'm going to submit it to publishers and like it was all just one step after the next so I started writing something I just felt it was right and I kept writing and I kept writing and then at New Year's I was like make it a full manuscript finish the book by New Year's that was just a goal and then in January February I was like submit it to some publishers and it was just like I just was going through the motions almost um even the title of the book was like a fluke because I attached it to the the when I was sending it to Jane Curry the publisher of Ventura Press um I wrote the title of the book in the email title. I, I just 
It was. A, I was going to say how to break up with girlfriends. But then I thought she'd think it was a dating book, so I just deleted the word girl, and I, I and it just was like in that moment how to break up with friends and I think the title has just been so pivotal to people immediately recognizing this important message um so then it like every step after that when she accepted it and then we published it I didn't realize entirely how big that was what that meant and and what it meant to be exposing yourself to the world in some ways I did because I, I I like self-published with her so I contributed financially to the to put I believed in this message without really understanding the gravity of publishing a book uh and then when it came out and then all of a sudden I had all these bookstagrammers reviewing it I was like ah so scared because I I was like oh my gosh I put this work out and now people are going to publicly say what they think about it. And the reception has been amazing. Like I'm so, I can't believe how positive and kind and beautiful the Instagram community and the Insta, the bookstagram community has been like so many beautiful women who are just very kind and thoughtful in their words. And, and most of these women I, I DM and I have chats with like yourself and, and they're just, you know, real gorgeous women who are just wanting to spread the word and have a beautiful hobby that they share with the world. And it's just been this beautiful community of very, very kind people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, def- I love it. I couldn't imagine being without it now. <laughs> now. Now, to finish up, what can we expect from you in the future? Ah, this is a good, uh, maybe I should get some feedback from the listeners. What do you want? <laughs> um, I, I would, I think, you know, Jane's very keen on on doing some more stuff in the assertiveness space because I think that's probably something we could talk more about. You know, how do you assert yourself without feeling like you're being confrontational or you're detonating a, detonating a confrontation bomb or, you know, and, you know, I talk about flicking in the book, I talk about flicking between all or nothing mentalities where we feel like, I can't do anything, so I'll do nothing. Um, but actually there is a nice middle ground where you can speak the truth and you can say that something's not right or when things are inappropriate. And, and that's part of the app, assert yourself as well. So maybe something to do with assertiveness and and getting some real experiences from some of the beautiful people I've met because it is just such a common experience to have that sense of, you know, this this gut instinct that we all have, which is our heart telling us what's right for us. You know, our, our gut instinct is that, I can only describe it as that deep knowing you have in your heart where you feel that something's right for you. And for whatever reason, like neurobiologically, we can call it your fight or flight mode has been chronically put on overdrive and you haven't been allowed to listen to your gut instinct. You haven't been given the opportunities to listen to your gut instinct. You have had to suppress your gut instinct in order to survive or get through something. Um, And over time, it's gotten more and more difficult to hear that gut instinct and or to act on it when you do hear it. Um, So reconnecting us with our gut instinct and listening to that even though you might have these chronic, you know, all the cortisone and adrenaline and all of the stress hormones going on in your brain that are causing you to 
resist and suppress that gut instinct, we can actually push that aside. We can learn to push it aside and we can learn to go deeper and connect with the intuition underneath. It's just about, you know, how do we do that and how to be mindful about doing that and learning to redevelop that brain muscle to hear our instinct again. Um, so I, I feel really drawn to that space. So I think something like that would be, yeah, really nice. Yeah, definitely. I am keen to read that one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, Hannah. Thanks for having me. And if you would like to get a copy of Hannah's book, How to Break Up with Friends, it is available now. And you can also find her on Instagram at Noble Psych. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at SoNovelPodcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy reading.